You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on April 21st, 2022. And uh, I had really intended to finish up talking about the advanced mentalizing uh, stuff, uh, except that uh, during the last uh, um, talk about it, I I had the sense that uh, while I covered the different scales individually, I might not have done enough to organize them all together into one uh, scale or one uh, way of thinking about advanced mentalizing. Um, And so I thought that I would try and connect them uh, tonight so that you have a, a, a better sense of that. If you recall, the the different scales are the the philosophical ages that we live in, the the depth of your experience and how well you've been able to integrate that. And then looking at the uh, advanced mentalizing, both from a spiritual uh, focus and also from a systems focus uh, so that uh, there's a sense of um, really what to do with the, the state of the world and these uh, these periods of existential threat that we go in, uh, go through um, with the invasion of, um, there's a leaf blower, which is what Lucy is reacting to. I don't know if you can hear the leaf blower, but that's what it is. Um, George? Yeah. Are the events of the world just like leaf blowers in our minds? <laughs> <laughs> so you have, everything is a 60s pop ballad. That's just how it is. <laughs> 60s pop ballad. Pop okay. ballad. Pop ballad, okay. <laughs> when you said that, I just heard a, a, a female folk singer strumming a guitar. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're kind of rubbing your dog like you or a guitar there. Oh, yes. Lucy. Okay, um. sorry. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, of course, the we, we had these uh, drills where we would hide under the desk so that we could be saved from nuclear annihilation. Uh, it seems absurd at the moment, but uh, at the time we were under the desks and then we would run home and um, <laughs> uh, we're, we were supposed to go to the basement and fill bottles of water and put canned food in the basement and hide out in the basement for a few hours so we could get a sense of what it would be like. Uh, but when I ran home from the fourth grade, my my mother wasn't doing anything to prepare for the the nuclear winter and I was quite alarmed by it. And she said, well, listen, if they nuke Chicago, where we were living, there won't be anything left anyway. So why go through the process of, of putting cans in the basement? Um, so now that we have the invasion of um, 
the Ukraine and that constant specter back in the paper. It's been a long time I, since uh, that was a constant uh, uh, idea of a threat. You couple that with the uh, environmental uh, threat and then also with the, <laughs> the uh, runaway technology that we were facing and AI, those tends to be the big existential threats of our time. How do we manage all of that so that we don't either, um, I hear so often people saying, I'm taking a news break. I just can't deal with this. I'm going to live in bliss, ignorant bliss. Um, so I think uh, part of this uh, process of developing meditation practice is actually to be able to be in the present moment uh, as the conditions are. Obviously, the the way that news is presented, in at least in uh, this country, uh, everything is a, has an agenda attached to it, which isn't disclosed in the way that they create the reporting so then uh we come into that place of beginning to uh, uh, mentalize all of that and keep perspective of it so that we can uh, manage to be uh, fully engaged and at the same time maintain equanimity or the more balance so that we can be effective in our responses to the things that happen to us um the um so if we look at the 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 philosophical ages um and this is again from this book uh of around metamodernism which is a philosophy uh, uh making a case or an emergent philosophy really uh, in the earliest human uh, and other close relatives, the Neanderthals, they would call that the archaic. And then the magical and ritualistic thinking of tribal societies, the animistic. Uh, the mystical, mystical thinking of agricultural warrior society, Neolithic and onwards, would be Faustian. Post-Faustian would be the mythical, rational, transcendental thinking of traditional religious society. So I... One way that I think about that is moving out of uh, a purely superstitious view of things into a, a view that there's actually a, an order to the universe, uh, God-centered order. Uh, moving um, from that into the rational scientific thinking of the developed world, so that's the modern view. Um, so one of the things about the modern view, and you, you see that quite a bit, particularly around the technology debate, and also the climate debate uh, in a sense that uh, we will be able to find a technology that will solve the cl climate issue and we will be able to control the development of technology in such a way that it won't have an ad adverse effect on um, uh, our civilization. Really, these existential threats are focused on the, the nature of our civilization and uh, mankind of flourishing it's it's easy to get caught up in in these these right and left views of what it is for mankind to be flourishing or womankind or humankind to be flourishing in some sense when i think of that i'm thinking of everyone being able to pursue their exploration and find meaning uh, and that would be more i would say on the left side of things and on the right side of things is that there's a particular way that 
all people should live so that they can uh, prosper and find meaning. Um, I find that that view is very heteronormative in, in a way that doesn't include most of the people that I know, so I, I have a hard time with it. Postmodern is the post-rational uh, systemic critique of modern life and society. I tend to think of it as relativism and uh, um, not offering much in the way of alternatives to the dilemmas uh, that a modern society has brought. Uh, we have an interesting uh, relationship here now to technology. Uh, what it has, of course, produced is this uh, capacity to consume things at a, an extraordinarily high rate. Uh, so we have, in some sense, the appearance of this much higher standard of living than um, what we have had in the past when uh, so much labor, so much human labor was required to get anything done. Um, but at the same time, we, we've used up so much of the resources of the planet in a way that that really doesn't uh, uh, create a sense that that would be sustainable in any way over a long period of time. Um, one of the things about improving agriculture, of course, is that the cost of food has gone down and because the cost of food has gone down, the population has gone up. There's this sort of hard relationship between uh, resources available at a, a price point that then allows uh, the population to uh, increase. And it's increasing to a point where the natural world uh, isn't going to be able to sustain it. And the modernist view, of course, is that we'll have technologies that will be able to solve this and that uh, the population can grow and will stabilize. Uh, it's interesting to see the exponential nature of population growth, Christian. So I wonder where you would fit in the idea that of like communal sacrifice or or like ideas about like anti-growth and that like people need to sacrifice like they did in like World War II for the sake of the good of society and, and the world. Because I could put some of that under postmodern thought, but I could put some of that even under the sort of like Faustian, Faustian, post-Faustian ideas. Um. Well, in the metamodern view, there's an understanding of the nature of each of those systems and a way of relating those systems together, which I think is probably where I would go with that. How um, can we create a, an economy which is not based on growth, but a, an economy that's based on balance? And then how will that actually work out uh, in terms of balance over several generations, you don't have to uh, um, have these, these awful uh, collapses, I think, in a, in, in a, in a way uh, that we're, it seems li likely that we're headed. Um, if we uh, could then uh, use technology so that it creates a a balance that would be better. 
Um, and I, I guess that's uh, the main reason why I talk, I'm talking about mentalizing in the way that I am, because uh, it's very difficult to get the ready solutions that seem to be available to actually happen because there are so many interests against them happening. Um, so I, I really think of it more on a systems basis that if you change the system uh, and it, uh, then uh, it, it adjusts for all people so that in the sense that each of us are uh, volunteering to make these sacrifices in, in the limited way that we can, is it necessary if the system itself is made so that it's reflective of the in environmental needs, it's reflective in um, preserving the environment, it's uh, reflective of a distribution of resources which is uh, equitable uh, for the purpose of people being able to pursue uh, meaningfulness in their life. Um, it isn't a question so much of resources, in my mind, is it is of the distribution of resources. And the distribution of resources is really organized at a systems level of government. If you look, for instance, at the accumulation of wealth in our society, it's a direct result of changing the tax laws. The tax laws could have been kept the same and the money would not have flowed upward in the way that it did. The problem with the concentration of money in one area of society is that uh, when it uh, becomes a large enough accumulation, it becomes capable of corrupting the system. And so when you have this, you know, staggering wealth concentrated in a, in a few hands, the democratic safeguards that we would have had in place uh, to defend against the corruption of the system are lost. And so the system then itself tends to become progressively more corrupted. If you uh, look at the history of the tax code, um, the uh, the way that all of that money flowed up was by cutting taxes on uh, cut, moving from a uh, a progressive tax system to a relatively flat tax system. Uh, when I was a child, the top tax rate was ninety four percent on uh, high earners, so there was no point. Um, paying somebody that much because they, they, they didn't receive it. So there were other ways of distributing that wealth. Um, when I was a kid, the, the Rand Corporation, which was a, a conservative think tank, did an analysis of why the uh, Shaw's um, uh, monarchy in I Iran collapsed. And what they determined was the when the distribution of wealth gets beyond 40 to one, it destabilizes uh, the population. And if you look at our society, it's now what, what, 425 to one. So then what we look at are the systems that have to be in place to stabilize the society that's so unequal. And then you know, what you look at is the criminal justice system. We have 2.2 million people in prison. 
Uh, and at a certain point, how many more people can you put in prison? Um, um, in California, where I live, they, they simply stop enforcing some laws because there's no place to put people who are arrested for violating the laws. So the, the, the rule of law begins to collapse because there aren't resources to enforce the rule of law. But if you arrest somebody in your municipality, typically you would transfer them to the county jail, and then the county jail would transfer you to the state facilities. But if the state facility is full and the county facility is full, you don't have any place to transfer to them. And so the cost of housing the prisoner falls on the municipality, which would have to raise taxes in order to do that. And so instead, what they do is simply stop arresting people so the jails don't overfill. How can you have order uh, under the rule of law when that's what's happening? So then <clears throat> you see all of these systems are tied together and uh, some uh, capacity to track them and monitor them and uh, come up with a solution. And again, there are no shortage of solutions and many of them seem quite promising and would likely work. Um, the issue is why we won't be able to implement those. Uh, and then what we look at is that a large seg segment of the population isn't even mentalizing at a modern level. Uh, how do you... Um, so, and I'm not suggesting really even a hierarchy of, of systems here that one is better than another. What I'm suggesting is that there's a, a way that things mean something to somebody within a system. Uh, for instance, with Dan Brown's teaching uh, in the Tibetan tradition, he would take what is largely a post-Faustian view uh, of the, the world and he would translate it uh, into a way that modern or postmodern people can understand it, which required uh, a capacity to mentalize both the traditional Tibetan system and to mentalize the modern postmodern system, and then be able to relate the meaningfulness of each of those systems to each other in a way that allows for there to be a communication um, that, to happen in each of the groups, understanding what each of the group is meaning using the system and language that the, the different uh, groups are using. So that's that, that um, metamodernism, the, the ability to track more than one system, to be able to digest more than one system, and then the ability to relate more than one system so that people are actually in a place of being able to communicate. I know in sitting with, uh, with uh, one of the teachers that I have, uh, he, he talks about it in a very traditional uh, Tibetan point of view, but I don't relate to most of it. it. It doesn't make sense to me. And without that capacity to translate it into uh, the way things, the way that I find meaning in things, I, I find the teaching very uh, unengaging, I guess would be the way to put it. Jake? Thank you for explaining that. I was just going to ask, what do you make of a society that hasn't like, for instance, a Burmese society or another Southeast Asian society that hasn't seemingly 
what do you make of a society like that? They haven't moved into the modern view yet because they're, they're hierarchy based and just like kind of fundamentally, they haven't really, they don't have any history of democracy at all. Right. So, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you make of that? You know, how do you talk about that to us? Well, if you're in a, in a system where you grew up and there was a definite bias toward the democratic societies over, uh, you know, a monarchy or a, a authoritarian society like is in Myanmar now, um, we have the same issue. Uh, how do we relate those different systems in a way that actually communicates meaning across the systems, which is what's not happening? Uh, and so then we all become impenetrable, unknowable to the other. And that creates a sense of strangeness. And then uh, that sense of strangeness so easily turns to uh, a feeling that we need to impose the view on the other person. Really what we're trying to do is impose a view on them so that we can understand what, what's going on with them. But because that doesn't <laughs> tend to produce much of a result. Uh, we simply have the oppression of the minority. Um, but how do we, how do we, I feel like I'm kind of grappling in the dark a little bit about how do we figure out what uh, stage of worldview our society is in? If it's like we're limited by the glasses, like we don't see our glasses, we have right. kind of glasses that we can't see and we're looking through that trying to understand or make sense of the world like how do we move forward in this subject it seems so kind of abstract but like very meaningful in a way that i don't understand yet so this is the purpose of this conversation around advanced mentalizing because what you do is you develop your capacity to mentalize um we can talk about this in, in these different stages um I'll go very quickly through the early stages since <laughs> hopefully we've got uh, past them. Um, the calculatory stage can distinguish between zero and one, like a digital computer. This is a, at the molecular level, right? Can only uh, react to stimulus, uh, stimuli without distinguishing for strength of reaction. So uh, simple organisms. The automatic stage would be the cellular stage, uh, can react to stimuli depending on different qu quantities, but only by automatic responses. Uh, the sensory or motor stage, the amoeba, where you actually have the capacity to move around, can react in different ways to different stimuli and can coordinate two uh, stimuli responses, move body parts. Circular sensory motor stage, insect, fish, newborn human, can reach, touch, grab, shake things, babble, make single sounds, move body parts uh, after having perceived objects. Most predatory fish, uh, insects, newborn babies. The sensory motor stage, uh, so a rat, small baby, can do a series of movements that are calibrated uh, after one another and build upon one another to achieve something, includes putting several sounds together so that you can form uh, a, 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 a sound, um, at least in language prone species, 
rats, young human babies. Uh, the nominal stage pigeon, one-year-old toddlers can find uh, relationships among concept and then make them into words, single words, explanations, knowing the meaning of a word, can begin to understand what other organisms mean, uh, laboratory pigeons, one-year-old toddlers. Uh, centennial stage, two to three-year-old, can put words together into sentences, see series of simple tasks that need to be coordinated, imitate a sequence. This allows for the use of pronouns like I, mine, you, yours, it, uh, parrots, uh, cats, toddlers around two or three, to remember that stage. Um, Pre-operational stage, three to five-year-olds can make simple deductions but not spot contradictions, follow lists of sequential asks, tell short stories, can use uh, connectives, if, then, as, when, dogs and small children, three to five years old. Primary stage, five to seven years old, can do logical deduction and use uh, empirical uh, rules, adds, subtracts, divides, multiplies, can relate to times, places, can count uh, chimpanzees, rhesus monkeys, and humans, five to seven-year-olds. Concrete stage, seven to 11, can do long division, follow complex social roles, take on roles, can create meaningful concrete stories, uh, normal in humans ages seven to 11, but also significant portion of the adult population. So here, what we begin to see is when the mentalizing isn't developed necessarily, uh, we come into these stages of our capacity to mentalize, but they're limited in being able to do an, uh, uh, to create an understanding beyond that. The abstract stage, ages 11 to 14, can form abstract ideas and thoughts, single generalized variables, relates to categories and uses cases of events to incrementally improve understanding humans 11 and older, a significant part of the adult population, about 30%. No known non-human animals. So we're at a point here where the human animal is mentalizing at a greater capacity than all of the other species that we're aware of. The formal stage, ages 14 to 18, if at all, can identify relationships between abstract variables, reflect upon those uh, revelations, devise ways to test them, can speak in full rich language, 14 and onwards, most common stage in adult human beings, about 40% of the adult population. Only a minority of people go beyond this stage. So when we find that the majority of the human population is at this formal stage, which is really sort of the late teen stage of, of the capacity to mentalize, it isn't hard to understand why uh, ideas that are very simple and that may not be actual or tested can resonate in populations and actually bring them to action. So then what we would need to do is figure out a way to uh, begin to de develop the capacity to mentalize, which I think would be part of the educational system. And what you see uh, in these uh, systems of inequality is that the public education system comes under 
a savage attack and it's uh, as much of it is that they can destroy they do because it limits people's ability to be able to understand what's actually happening and to go along with these agendas which are so unequal and so unjust um, and that's really what's happened in our country in terms of the public education system so we have these uh, you know, large segments of population that don't get much past here. Christian? I think Jake has sort of brought this up in the past, but if, if... Go ahead, Christian, we can always blame Jake later. Yeah, yeah, no. You no. uh, <laughs> put me up to it. Um, well, so if you're teaching people to mentalize, like there, there has to be something else, right? Because you could have, you could have like an, you could have an army of super avoidant children in school that are like mentalizing at a high level and, you know, running circles around the rest of us, but they're like, you know, they're all getting jobs in the oil and gas industry or something. Right. Well, if you look at it from the attachment point of view, it isn't the super high mentalizing that you need to, to operate securely. So it's sort of uh, low high, how do you put it? On a, on a one to nine scale, six is the cutoff for secure. And if you mentalize lower than that, um, then uh, it tends to correspond to people not being able to, to uh, mentalize fast enough really to understand the interactions between relationships and respond in this in a uh, secure way well is it is it like raising mentalization in general or is it more sort of about the modular nature of how different people mentalize like different attachment styles mentalize um or have certain mentalization skills but not like the complete set of mentalization skills so like you'd have to teach mentalization in a very modular way or encourage certain certain kinds of reflection over others or? Well, one of the things about meditation, which I think is quite useful, is that uh, the Theravada system and also the, Ter the Tibetan system, to the degree that I'm aware of it, uh, the practice of meditation develops the capacity to mentalize. So from that perspective, the practice of, of, of uh, mentalization develops naturally in, with your uh, uh, meditation practice. When uh, we did the study with Dan um, about the effectiveness of uh, Vipassana meditation and psychoeducation around attachment and their three pillar approach, what we found was in our meditative group the mentalizing was much higher, a point or point and a half higher than the non-meditating group, but it didn't correspond to a change in the underlying attachment, which would suggest that um, it's more than one thing. It's more than just purely mentalizing. It would then be uh, to uh, be able to uh, explore uh, mainly, I think these uh, the idea that really resonates with me is that you develop the capacity to mentalize well enough that you can take in more than one system and then you can relate the systems and then you can uh, use that capacity to relate them to communicate across systems 
so that people understand without having to change their uh, native view um, that maybe there are in fact shared ideas between us that would, we could work together to uh, uh, bring into fruition. Am I getting close to your question? Yeah, I, I think so. Like some, I know, maybe I haven't seen this recently, but I would see like articles about meditation all the time. And it'd be like, how to use meditation to be better at work or to be like a better CEO. <laughs> I would like read it and I'd just be like, is there some way to just blow up the internet? <laughs> For the sake of humanity, because like the, these people don't need to be better CEOs or or whatever. Well, if you could understand the nature of um, so, how many thirty thousand square foot houses do you need to feel happy? Um, is one way of, of looking at the kind of accumulation that we have uh, in our society. Um, but is, is that meaningful actually? Is any of that meaningful? So how do we, we know what is meaningful? And, uh, and then should we be centering uh, rather than on growth, <laughs> gee, um, um, GPA uh, or uh, for instance, like Bhutan, they have a, a metric to measure happiness in society. And so they, they actually flow resources into supporting the experience uh, of people's happiness and pursuit of meaningfulness. It's a, it's a really fundamental shift in, in, in uh, view but you'd have to be able to explain to that through somebody who thinks the addition of a six 30,000 square foot house is going to make them happier so that they would uh, shift or the, uh, um, the people that think that uh, we need to overthrow the government so that we can get back to the true America. I mean, how do you relate to that in a way that doesn't, cause you to close off communication altogether. Uh, Harley? George, um, can you ground this a little bit for me in terms of, um, you know, I look at my kids and the attachment piece of the puzzle. Right. But this hierarchy of complexity that you're talking about, how does it evolve through social interaction through you know how how do how do we as as beings move up that ladder um i think with your kids what you do is you encourage their exploration the thing that has meaning to them and you provide the support uh for them to be able to pursue those things uh, and that you're you you're conscious of the 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 level of difficulty that's age appropriate, and you keep raising the the standard of engagement of with them uh, in relationship to their pursuit of meaningfulness. Is that making sense? So that what might have been an acceptable level of involvement in, in the fifth grade needs to be a little bit higher in the sixth grade. 
Um, and it's always focused on the things that are actually meaningful to them so that you're supporting them in the development of the, the thing that resonates for them. Is that helping? So you're not pushing an envelope. You're just, you're just working within their comfort zone. Well, you're at the edge of their comfort zone. What you want them to feel is successful in exploring, not defeated in exploring. So in order for them to feel successful in exploring, they need to succeed in discovering what it is that they want. Some people just keep making the tasks so hard that they can't do it. Uh, I have an example of that, that uh, uh, I had a student whose who's dad uh, uh, was one of the Boy Scout leaders for his son. And when they went on these uh, long hikes, uh, he would put rocks in the, the backpack of, of his son to make it harder. But he, he, always, he mostly succeeded in making it so difficult that he couldn't complete the climb. And that was not helpful. It was defeating. So what you would want to do is encourage them at, uh, at the edge of their uh, capacity so that they're expanding, but also to allow them the joy of actually succeeding in doing it. And then, the, and, and having plenty of room to fail. We don't have that so much in our culture here, but in Japan, they have a saying, which I quite like, seven times down, eight times up. So you're not making it so that they can't succeed at it. Uh, at the same time, it needs to be challenging at their level. This is really an engaged parenting, right? Because you have to monitor, you have to know where they're at and you have to uh, um, support them to really go for it. And if they don't make it, you have to catch them, put them back up and then push them out again. And that's what creates a sense of resilience. I mean, in exploration, of course, most things don't pan out. Uh, and that's just the nature of exploration. But if you don't understand that and you don't have the resilience to go through it, you'll stop exploring before you discover the thing that you need to know. And we really want to instill in them this understanding that they can find the thing that they need to know, uh, even if they require resilience in order to be able to do it. And this may be something that we learn from meditation, because in the beginning, um, so I'd like to say, I sat down and I white knuckled it as long as I could possibly stand it. And I opened my eyes and two minutes had gone by. <laughs> and I closed my eyes and I went, that's ridiculous. And I sat there as long as I could endure it. And I opened my eyes and another minute had gone by. <laughs> so I was able to on my own in my own house on my own cushion sit for three minutes before I had to get up because I couldn't bear to sit there anymore. I could sit a little bit longer in groups of people because there was the societal pressure uh, was helpful to me. Uh, and it took a long time to develop that. Uh, so, uh, and it feels good to have been able to develop that capacity to sit.
And um, when I initially read this list, uh, I was sort of at the beginning of the intermediate list of being able to uh, uh, of the metacognitive skills that and I know I couldn't even really understand the advanced metacognitive uh, stuff. And now I, I have a good sense of it, uh, which is very rewarding. It, it, it has taken 20 years, but uh, who's counting, right? Um, Christian? Sounds like a meditation analog of the kid in the back seat asking <laughs> continuously, are we there yet? Because he doesn't have a concept. Yet. Well, in, in this uh, in this frame, of course, the uh, I would normally have said that um, uh, it was you know nine years old before somebody can really tell time but in here it was in the, the category earlier five to seven um well we still haven't gotten through this whole thing so maybe we'll do one more in discussing this but um what's most interesting to me is we we live in this time and uh um, the the conflicts that come about by not being able to relate uh, in a in a way that translates meaning in these different systems is is uh, really painful. Um, uh, not understanding the perception of harm uh, that one side views the other as engaging in both sides engaging in the belief that the other side is causing harm and yet uh, the values of one side are the thing that the other side finds harmful it's how are we going to get through this because we have these dilemmas of of the specter of nuclear war we have the, the dilemma of climate change we have the dilemma of of uh these uh, advanced uh, technologies being used by authoritarian regimes in a way that's going to be, you know, really hard to deal with. We can't grab them uh, before uh, there's an indifferent machine uh, in in charge of things. So I think it's an it's really one of the more important. Uh, ideas i you know one of the things that makes me really so hopeful about this is uh, that i had the te i had this teacher dan brown who could translate uh the this uh post faustian system that i i don't relate to really much at all without the translation in a way that's meaningful and that the reason that he could do that is because he not because he had uh, valued one over the other or preferred one over the other, but that he understood the meaning of them at, a, at such a deep level that he could relate the meanings of each system to each other. And and then it resonated in a way that, that was quite profound. Uh, um, and without that that understanding of linking these pedagogies together, uh, it, it doesn't work, and so that's my 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 sense of why we 
should be considering this and trying to, to figure it out and then do it in such a way that it's relatable to these across these different uh, philosophies. Um, the modern philosophy is really centered in the affluent West and it, it's not going to be relatable to uh, the probably the larger part of humanity. And we need to do something or the outcome will be just a terrible period of environmental degradation and famine and all the rest of the stuff that comes with uh, are not addressing this. Um, but then let's also uh, do a little practice. Um, why don't we do some Vipassana practice using a basic see her field technique and then settling into a uh, focus in focus out strategy. So any comments or questions about the practice that we just did? Christian? George, for like, for my thoughts or like, for me, I guess it's mostly herein. What is the interface? Can you explain what the interface between the conceptual reality and the ultimate reality is because it seems like a lot of my thoughts are conceptual so is it just the noise that they make is the ultimate reality yeah the vibratory energy of the sound is the ultimate reality and the conceptual reality is what you make the sounds into harley so is this kind of a front door to, you know, deconstructing the self and then opening to awareness through that? Or is it really just focused on that deconstruction exercise? Well, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by deconstructing? Well, realizing that <clears throat> these, um, you know these sense gates are operating but i'm not uh i'm not harley isn't behind the steering wheel making it happen um and it's happening within this broader field of awareness so by getting closer and closer to that does it open up the expansiveness i i tend to find that i stay <clears throat> closer to realizing that these, um, the sense gates, you know, I'm going through all of them and I tend to put Vedna with it. So I know that this is all happening and there's really no one uh, at the wheel. Well, so there's no limited identity Harley doing it, but Harleyness is doing it. If you if you get that your condition, who you are really your condition body mind activity is doing all of this, um, and that's very uniquely Harley, um, because your conditioning is yours and nobody else's, but the idea that a limited identity Harley is doing it is not true. 
So then you touch into that activity of harlingness, which is then when you open it up to the expansiveness of it, uh, part of this sacred activity of, of life. That's where you want to get to. Do you think that the Vedana gets in the way of that last part? Um, I think in the beginning, uh, the noting and labeling of every aspect of it is useful because it trains the mind to be able to mentalize that aspect. But at a certain point, uh, you get into a place where the the clarity is uh, great enough that you can just note it directly without having to uh, um, label each aspect of it. The problem with the labeling is it activates a different part of the mind and it's slow. And so you can't really get into that broad expansiveness using that. You have to go into a directly noting um, um, way of practicing. Otherwise, you can't keep up with it. That yeah, that's sense. really helpful. Yeah, operating from awareness and, and working at that higher speed for sure. Right. Then when... So in the, the Vipassana, of course, the, 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 it's the deconstructing and then the bringing it back together, but it being able to see the pieces in the whole. Whereas before you did that, you just saw the whole or the pieces, you couldn't see the pieces operating in the whole. This might be another way to put it. So you get to the point where the clarity is so good, you can see all of those pieces come together and form the ex whole expansive experience. And when you can get to that uh, place, it takes on quite a, a sacred quality, at least in my experience. Thanks, George. Jake? <clears throat> I just wanted to comment, uh, like, maybe you should, like, uh, make a CD, you know, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe you should make like, an album of your That's progressive so meditations. Nice. That's so 1990s. <laughs> no, but like, like, you know, like, like a progressive album of these, uh, like oh. state, you know, like state directed meditations with a sort of like, uh, how do they have these like cyperhonic beats or whatever stuff oh. that gets you into these different states? That would be really helpful. I just, just my comment. Okay. You can do it with the flute, George. The flute? Yeah. <laughs> Are you referring to the story of my dad? Would you say that? <laughs> no, but uh, I was just, I was thinking about all the music that I've listened to in yoga class. So I was just oh, that's funny. Because th th this is obviously conditioning. So you have this idea of flute music in yoga class that, that had a quite a natural beauty to it. And my narrative around the flute is very different than that. Uh, uh, when I was in fourth grade, I wanted to play the flute and I was practicing madly at home. And uh, my dad came into the room and said, how much does that flute cost to rent? And I said, it's $12. And he said, it's not worth it. Take it back. <laughs> we might we might have a similar view. I hate, I hate the yoga flute music. actually. <laughs> So that would be like the intro track, you know, like just the, the flute and the story, then going into the practices. 
uh, the, the fun part of the story is that when I turned the flute in, my music teacher said, you know, there is a scholarship for the tuba. <laughs> so, so I brought the tuba home and he couldn't make me take it back because there was no rent for it. <laughs> That's a really incredible story. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for uh, coming. Thank you for your practice. I offer the. Hey, uh, George. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if I could talk to you about something administrative. Sure. <laughs> as hard as I get. Do you want to wait yeah. until after the class is over and then we can sure. talk? All right. Sure. Yes, yes, hi. Yeah, hi. Hi. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'll wait. Uh, all right, I'll close up right now, and then we can talk. Um, okay. So, uh, I offer the class uh, on a Donna basis. That means I offer the teaching freely. But then I hope you'll make a donation. There's a place to do that on my website. A link for a donation. Um, our level two class closed today, so there's no opening for that. We haven't scheduled the next level one class, so I can't tell you that. The only thing we have on the calendar is the in-person retreat, which is October 1st through October 8th up in the Sierra. So if you're interested in sitting uh, retreat, take a look at that. It, it, we do very small retreats, so it's about a quarter full at the moment. <clears throat> All these months ahead. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate your practice, and we'll see you soon. Bye now. Hello? You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Hi. So I wanted to ask you, um, I have sent you an email. I don't know if you got it. Julia, can you stop? Mm -hmm. um, um, I noticed that, so we had originally scheduled for Wednesdays at four or something. I can't remember right. what time. But that's been canceled. Tyson had called me and said you no longer can do that time. Right. Um, he left me a message and I uh, just wanted to see what your new availability is. I have 4.30 on Monday or uh, 4.30 on uh, Wednesday. Let's see if that holds up. Yeah. Either of those so, work? Yeah, Wednesday, 4.30, right? Julia, do you have anything on 4.30? No, you have piano, but that doesn't matter. I can pick you up. That's 5.30. Your piano is 5.30? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, 4.30 should be okay. So is it every, what did we do? Like every first Wednesday? I can remember what it was. Right. The next one I have scheduled is the 11th of May. Okay, so is that so, but I'm just wondering monthly wise, is that like the second Wednesday? Yeah, that's the second Wednesday. So would that mean that it's always going to be a second Wednesday? Um, with the monthly ones, we do tend to move them around a little bit because of scheduling. They're okay. infrequent. The other choice to do would be for you to call when you want to have a session, mm -hmm. and then we can fit it into wherever it is in okay. the week that's open. I think that I think that should be okay. I just wonder, do you, does your system send a reminder? Because that would be helpful. Like I don't feel like, like sometimes I forget if it's like if it gets shifted around because right if it's monthly, and then but if there's a reminder that I can always just put in my calendar. But it's because Let me look month. and see what we got. Yeah, here. I get confused sometimes. Um, I have, all right, 
So we, we have that. I can send a text and voice reminder and also an email reminder. Just an like email reminder is fine, yeah. Okay, so I have that set up. Great. So the next one will be May 11th, right? Yeah. Okay, excellent. All right. Okay. Good, good to see you. you. All right, good to see you. Good night. Bye. Bye. Good night.